please be seated. Seven days changed the world, my friends. Seven days. That's all it took. Seven days, which have been the topic of countless publications, thousands of debates and films over the life of the central characters of those seven days. Seven days that have inspired the greatest artists and painters, the most skilled architects and sculptors, the greatest musicians. Seven days changed the world. The cultural impact of those seven days is impossible to measure, but even harder still is the transformation of millions of men and women and children for all of eternity. Seven days changed the world. Now, most of the world, at that time outside of Jerusalem, didn't even notice. They weren't even aware what was going on. And yet today, here we are all gathered together at the beginning of those seven days. So what happened exactly? Well, It's a story of triumph, of the king riding into Jerusalem with the crowd shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And also, it's a story of tragedy. The king being rejected, betrayed, denied, sentenced wrongly, beaten, and finally carrying his own cross up the hill of Golgotha to the place of the skull and executed there between two common criminals. And yet triumph. Two days later, the dead body rises from the grave and Jesus appears once again to Mary and then to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and then again to the ten who are all locked behind closed doors. Seven days. It's called Passover today by the Jews. Called Passover then by the Jews. Why do we call it Holy Week? Or maybe the Passion of the Christ. Anybody see the movie? It's been a while now. Do you remember? The Passion of the Christ. And yet I would submit to you that we do not have a good understanding of what the passion was all about. When I talk to you about passion, what do you think I'm going to mention? Romance? All the things you gave up for Lent? Your passion? Chocolate? Ice cream? Dessert? Is that your passion? It has an entirely different meaning these seven days when we talk about the passion of the Christ. I've got some examples there in your, in your bulletin, the piercing of his side. If you go to any Christian bookstore, if you can even find a Christian bookstore, find a book of art. What do you see? A, a trickle of blood down the side, perhaps. A few spots on the brow from the crown of thorns. The Gospel of John says that a Roman soldier pierced Jesus' side. The reason being to make sure that he's dead, to pierce the heart 
And so there's got to be lots and lots of blood and water just gushing out. This is not a pretty sight. The painful death at a Roman cross, we have the idea of this majestic cross just rising from the hillside. The glory of the king and what is to be. The reality was it was about a foot off the ground. It was a means of humility. You weren't raised way above everyone. You were barely off the ground so the soldiers could spit in your face and smack you whenever they wanted to. They would just haul off and slug you. And of course, the scourging, so brutal that most prisoners never even made it through. They were already dead. Isaiah says that Jesus was not recognizable. Now, if you've seen The Passion of the Christ, the movie, you know that it was brutal. Rated R, but the Gospels should have been rated even beyond that. It was a slaughter, and literally it is a slaughter. Blood and flies and maggots eating the flesh, raw hamburger with the blood still in it that was once a human body. We sanitized the crucifixion. I mean, after all, we want our our children to come (laughs) to church. But look at the cross. Do you see a body? No body. And even when you do see the corpus, the body of Christ, We sanitize that as well. We put a loincloth on him because after all, no one wants to see a naked Savior, do we? But the original crucifixion was brutal, filled with violence. But that's not the goal of Holy Week. The achievement is not so that we can understand just how real and violent the actions were. The goal and the achievement of Holy Week is so that we can understand God's love and the sacrifice that Jesus has made. But in order to do that, we have to have some understanding of what he went through for us. But I'm getting way ahead of myself. (laughs) We're already on Friday. We haven't yet done Sunday. So let's take a look shall we, at the tragedy, first of all, of Palm Sunday. I mean, it's meant to be a triumph. Excitement is running high. The crowds are cheering wildly. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Because they see Jesus, right, as the Messiah, the King, the Anointed One, the Savior, the Chosen One who will take away all of their problems, who will kick out the Romans once and for all and make life grand once again. Imagine the Super Bowl, opening day at Wrigley, your favorite rock concert all rolled into one and literally tens of thousands of people all crowding together just to get a little visual or or maybe, maybe even get close enough to touch him. And they're ripping the the palm branches from the trees and they're ripping the jackets and the coats 
and their cloaks off their body and throwing them down like a regal carpet for their king. And they all crowd in the excitement into the plaza at the great shrine of the temple. And then Jesus is going to go in. The moment they've been waiting for, what's he going to do? I mean, some remember at his baptism when, when the heavens broke open and the, the dove, the Holy Spirit, came down and the voice, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Will there be a similar sign, lightning, thunder, a voice from God? The Gospel of Mark tells us that Jesus enters the temple And he looks around at everything. And since it was late in the day, he turned and went out again. That's it. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. Ain't no more, as they say. That's it. End of the story. He just turned around, looked at everything. It's late in the day. Got to go home. That's it. Talk about an anti-climax. Super Bowl without the game. Rock concert without the band. Wedding without a bride. That's what's going on here. What we come for anyway. So how do you feel? You go to the Super Bowl, no game. Go to the wedding, no bride. Go to the concert, no band. You're getting a little angry. I paid good money for this. I bought tickets. I'm in the front row. And that's all I get. And so by Thursday, the anger is building and the Pharisees see, they, they see their opportunity. Let's arrest this guy. The crowds have turned against him. And on Friday, it's no longer Hosanna. It's what? Crucify him. Give us some blood. Execute this pathetic king. That's what we're going to do. passion meant to be triumphal has turned to tragedy because you see there are two different paths there are the expectations of the people an earthly king who's going to solve all of our problems and Jesus himself who knows that he must disappoint everyone that he must follow the path that there must be passion which means suffering For the sins of all the people, there must be death of the one for the many. And so there is triumph. Not in the way that the people wanted it, but in the way that it must be. You see, the triumph of Palm Sunday is that God breaks into the affairs of of humans. God shows love over hate. The people want a war and God says, no, I'm going to give you a sacrifice. The death of my son. For all of human history, we as people have always wanted to ascend up to God. To do what we must do. To do what we have to do. So that we can ascend to his level. And so we try good works and we try offerings and we try our own sacrifices and yet none of it ever works. It's only God coming 
down from heaven to earth. It's only God bending to our level. And so, my friends, the the triumph of Palm Sunday in the beginning of these seven days marks the victory of God in our affairs. It shows that God is not above our pain, but rather he has suffered more than we could ever imagine. And he hasn't come to solve all of our earthly problems, but our greatest problem, the one that we admitted early in the service, we call that sin. You confess again that you've messed up, that you haven't met God's mark. You can't rise to his standards. That's the problem that God has solved. He's forgiven you. And the blood that we don't see on our sanitized cross, that blood shed on the original cross, cleanses you from all your sin and has paid the debt. Because Jesus became sin for you and he suffers right alongside of you no matter what you're going through he is there the triumph of Palm Sunday and Holy Week is that God takes us out of the wilderness of sin and raises us up as his children that he will love forever. Well, that's all pretty dramatic. <laughs> How about a little history lesson to close out today? Anybody know who the 38th Vice President of the United States is? A little quiz here. Now, we're pretty good at the presidents, right? Most of them. Can you say them in order? You know the first one? <laughs> All right, I'll help you out a little bit. 38th Vice President of the United States. Now, you've got to be a little older now to remember this. Back, back in the 60s, Hubert Humphrey. Anybody remember that name? Hubert H. Anybody know what the H stands for? Horatio. Can you say that? Hubert Horatio Humphrey. All right, so 1978. It's a tradition, isn't it, in Washington, no matter who you were, vice president, president, senator, you have an opportunity then to be buried and to lie in state. So Hubert Humphrey is lying in state there in the Capitol. Anyone who is anyone, anyone who has ever been anyone, fills the room kind of like this. They're all standing around, milling about, greeting one another, except for one man. One man. One man standing in the back. Ignored by everyone else. In fact, no one will come near him because of the shame that he has brought upon himself. 1978, Richard Nixon, Watergate. Until the current, at that time, resident of the White House, 1978, Jimmy Carter comes up to Richard Nixon and he reaches out his hand like he's an old friend, like he's a family member. And he says, welcome home, Mr. President. Welcome home. So good to see you. And then embraces him. 
Newsweek magazine, and I wrote this down so I would quote it properly, wrote this, if there ever was a turning point in Nixon's long ordeal in the wilderness, it was that moment and that gesture of love and compassion. Have you been in the wilderness? Have you had those barren stretches of life? When you are thirsting for love and compassion, when the weight of the world is on your shoulders and the burden is crushing you. In comparison to God who is perfect in every way, we have failed so utterly in all that we have done and we deserve nothing but to be in that wilderness, in that desert, not only for this life but for all of eternity and the great triumph then of Holy Week that we have begun today. The triumph is that Jesus Christ has come down from heaven to earth and he has lived in our place the perfect life that God demands and then suffered in a violent, bloody and real sacrifice of himself for all of us. God goes with us through the dry patches of life, through our own wilderness, and he brings us out to the other side. It's my prayer for all of you that as you have, as you have begun this journey of these seven days, that you would continue the Thursday in the upper room to see the love of Jesus as he washes his disciples' feet, as he shows them a new way to love each other, as he commemorates this supper that we're going to celebrate again here in a few moments, that you would continue on that journey to the cross along with Jesus and finally after his death to come next Sunday at the end of the seven days when the shouts of Hosanna and the echo of crucify him is replaced by Alleluia. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Let's all rise now and make profession of our faith.